Welcome to the Untangling Web3 podcast, your go-to hub to learn insights and the latest developments in the wild and wonderful world of Web3. I'm Alec Burns. And I'm Jack Davis. Tune in each week as we navigate and explore the rapidly emerging landscape of the Web3 technologies, projects, and ideas that are shaping the future of the internet. We'll be talking to the best and brightest in the industry to keep uncovering insights. So that hopefully we can all learn together on our journey to untangle Web3. Welcome to another episode of the Untangling Web3 podcast. Today, we're delighted to have John Belisarios, a distinguished authority in the digital financial realm. John has a 25-year tenure in IT and financial services. He also served as a managing director at Accenture for digital assets, custody, and central bank digital currencies. John has advised multiple governments, spoke at some of the largest events in the world, and has an extensive portfolio of publications and patents. Welcome to the podcast, John. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for joining us, John. We're really excited to have you on. We wanted to tackle this topic of CBDC and central bank digital currencies for a long time now. And it was one we were tentative about because we wanted to have an expert with us to, to kind of guide us, hold our hand through it, because it's a, there's a lot to talk about. How are you today, John, first and foremost, though? Very good. Thank you. Very good. Awesome. So let's kick things off. I know you've got a very storied career in history as Alec indicated there but can you just give us a very brief background about your early career well early on i guess uh, before i got into the whole uh, cbdc topic uh, i actually worked in uh, software development uh, many years ago uh, so even before the 25 year sort of career in technology and financial services i actually worked in software development in the aerospace industry uh, where i was involved in a lot of mission critical systems um, and uh, working in the uh, in, again in aerospace, uh, and then and then decided to make a jump into sort of a career in consulting, uh, where I started working for a big consulting firm um, in London, and uh, moved over from Canada originally, uh, and started working in the whole information security space. And I have a background in cryptography and technology, of course, and, and software development. Um, and I got I got involved in this whole whole space of financial services uh, through my cryptography and information security background. Awesome. Yeah, I, I detected a, a slight Canadian twinge there, so I'm glad I was right. Um, and, and it sounds like you've got the kind of career that would suit you very well, obviously, to, to, to working in CBDC world. But was there anything in particular that led you into, into this space, into digital assets, CBDC, and now I guess what we're calling Web3 in a, in a broader sense? Was there, what was the pathway from sure. what you were doing early on in your career to, to that to now? Yeah, I mean, I got involved in, the, I guess, in the whole uh, crypto, uh, cryptography, not necessarily crypto as a currency, but cryptography space and information security. And that, that sort of brought me into the whole, the whole financial services payment space. Uh, I spent quite a lot of time working with big banks, um, financial market infrastructure players, and, and a variety of different sort of uh, 
organizations that are heavily involved in financial services uh, and doing a lot of information security work in that space. So anything from crypto key management and all the way through to risk management around those systems. And that's how I sort of got into it. Um, and and then I, I took a career break halfway through that time and I ended up uh, joining a Bitcoin wallet company. Uh, that was about uh, over a decade ago. And uh, that sort of uh, I took a year off from, from my consulting life. Uh, where I was doing information security stuff beforehand and, and took a role in, in this Bitcoin wallet company and uh, spent a year and a bit um, sort of uh, working with that uh, organization to try to commercialize more of the offerings that they had and, and things like that. I, uh, I, came, I went back to Accenture actually uh, at that point um, and uh, I quickly realized um, and I also had a one of our very first uh, blockchain uh, projects, uh, which was with a central bank. And I uh, ended up sort of spending another year delivering that project with the team. And uh, that that meant that I was sort of, uh, I had a almost a break in my sort of information security career by sort of taking that year off, working in this crypto uh, wallet company, uh, you know, another year working on a uh, central bank project in the whole digital currency space. And that was sort of a very natural sort of uh, pivot point for me, because at that point, I then never looked back. I actually said, this is, this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. I want to look at, I want to look at, look at uh, how we develop um, digital currency, digital assets, uh, even crypto custody as well, and this whole topic. Uh, and it was actually a very uh, natural place for me because of my information security background and knowing how critical a lot of that stuff was. Um, you know, understanding cryptography, understanding the mathematics behind it, and also the mm. sort of the practical security implications of of uh, of, uh, of handling a lot of these uh, type of new innovative uh, technologies and stuff like that. And uh, given also the the financial services background, it was a, just a natural fit for me. And I ended up spending the, the rest of the remainder of my time working in consulting in that space. And then obviously at the beginning of this year, I I left and started up my own thing uh, as well. So. It seems like a, a fairly natural character arc, right? You had the technical background working in cryptography, then you moved to financial services, but then you also developed the consulting skills, the ability to actually communicate all the advantages of these technologies to you know, ministers, central banks, these people that are making the decisions. So I'm going to put you on yeah. the spot here. Uh, let, rather than calling them central bank digital currencies, we just save a lot of time by just calling them CBDCs. What is a CBDC? Yeah. A CBDC is basically a digital currency, a third format of of uh, central bank money. I mean, for those that you know, obviously, for for those that just to be very clear, central banks sort of have two formats of money, right? There's banknotes in circulation, things that you and I probably use much less uh, these days, but in some places it's still very, very uh, you know uh, actively used, and uh, and digital money held by central banks in a digital register. Um, so there's those are two forms, but that. The, the latter uh, is basically more tailored towards commercial banks uh, who hold their reserves with the central bank. And so it's digital in nature, of course, but it's not uh, uh, it's not meant for consumers and, and the general public to use. So CBDCs actually converge, um, for lack of a better description, it's like there's a convergence of both of those. It's a digital format of a central bank liability, like a banknote. But meant for wider, uh, uh, wider use. So uh, there's retail users for it. Uh, so you and I can use it to buy things with uh, CBDC. There's wholesale uses of it, which is more uh, 
for commercial banks and other types of, uh, of large scale payments, even commercial entities and so on. And I, I want to also maybe make an adjustment here because a lot of, a lot of us sort of, uh, the common terminology in the last few years has been retail and wholesale, but in reality, um, if you take a look at that, it's really more of a general purpose, uh, mm -hmm. digital currency mm -hmm. because it doesn't, doesn't, even if you put it into a, a circulation for consumers to use, there's nothing stopping a commercial entity from using that as well. There may be different limits. There may be different, um, interfaces and things like that, that you may, you may have with regards to the usage of it, but a general purpose CBDC, uh, is something that could be used across the board for both retail, wholesale, commercial applications and so on. And I think it's, it's important to sort of, uh, make this distinction now because we, we sort of are guilty of having, you know, created maybe a too simplistic language around retail and wholesale, but that's a, that's maybe a topic for another discussion. That's really interesting because I, I've read upon these things and I'd never considered that before. I always thought in the mindset of you have retail CBDC, which is for general public, you know, mm -hmm. digital cash, like you said, used for yeah. daily transactions, then wholesale, which is for big financial institutes, large interbank stuff, not for the general public. But you're so right. Like what is stopping uh, uh, someone using a retail yeah, CBDC if they're a commercial in entity? That is really interesting. First, big learning curve for me. So that's a little <laughs> bit on the what and the distinction yeah. there. Okay, why do we need CBDC? This is a really interesting one with the hype around crypto and all this kind of stuff. Why do we need a CBDC? I think, um, and this is also a, a sort of a, a timing thing. I think if you take a look at the innovation that's happened over the last uh, couple of years, uh, blockchain uh, technology, uh, if you take a look at Web3, if you take a look at sort of the digitization of money, um, you know, uh, online services and things like that. There is a there's a gap in the market for a, a different format of money that doesn't exist yet, which is obviously the CBDC where CBDC comes in. Um, that isn't a commercial bank liability. Isn't isn't something that I that I have to you know use my my credit card or my bank account or my debit card or my you know making a transfer from my account to your account. Because at the end of the day, so we have to we have to interact with these other intermediaries uh, in order to, to transfer our money, and and here a CBDC is a is a is something that I own. It's basically my own. It's like a banknote, right? And and I have the ability to transfer it to you in a digital manner, uh, and it's final, and it's uh, and it's something that then you can also give me sort of change if you are, or or goods or or other types of things back. Uh, as well, digital digital goods and things like that, and I think this is where we have a, a, a new sort of paradigm of engaging with each other that that wasn't possible before. Especially when you're dealing with payments over long distances, payments across borders, mm -hmm. payments uh, where people don't have a bank account, for, perhaps. And, mm -hmm. and I think this is also a, a very important uh, dimension that, that is also looked at. If you have, if you take a look at um, there's all, there are large segments of the population that are unbanked um, and, and depending on countries, of course, and so on. And there's certain functionality that you can enable with the CBDC that allows people to transact with each other uh, without even needing a bank account in order to do that or credit cards or anything like that. You can just basically do it like you're sending an email. I can send you money or mm -hmm. sending emails. And it's it's a, it's something that is final. You you receive it. Um, you do something with it. You spend it. You bank it. You do whatever you want to do with it. Um, and I think it creates a new a new ability for us to transact with one another that wasn't possible before. And it, 
the timing of it will be as a result of sort of the technology innovation, which I think is matured enough to the point now where you're seeing a lot of CBDC projects sort of tip into from pilot to production and so on, and we'll see more of those. Uh, but it's addressing a need in the market and, and um, that, that is unfilled. And I think there's a, there are a number of very specific applications of CBDCs that I think are very, um, are very interesting. Uh, I, you could argue the retail case, um, whether you need, whether the retail consumers need that or not. And there's a lot of discussions mm -hmm. and debates about that. And that is very jurisdiction specific um, in highly banked, highly technologically advanced or, you know, Western countries where everyone has a gajillion sort of bank accounts, and, you know, <laughs> credit cards and payment methods, Apple Pay, yeah. Google Pay and all these things. It may not serve that much of a useful purpose for those individuals. Um, Whereas in other markets where, you know, they don't have a bank account at all, for instance, and they, and the government wants to distribute uh, social aid, social benefits to them in a very uh, frictionless manner that doesn't mm -hmm. require intermediaries to distribute money. And of course, with intermediaries comes uh, cost, comes friction, comes uh, other sort of uh, challenges as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a you know this is a def definitely a, a, a more uh, inclusive way of distributing social aid to, to sort of consumers that can use it for paying for goods and services. And we've seen that in, in several projects. I can talk more about that as well. But there are other applications of, of CBDC that I think are probably even more powerful. Uh, and I think this is where the innovation will take us. I think very quickly. I think uh, because it's a space where there's a tremendous amount of friction and cost. Uh, uh, and and that's in the sort of the cross-border side of things. Whether it's consumers, mm. you know, sending money home, uh, remittance payments, or whether it's, or, or whether it's you know medium-sized payments or even large-value payments, there is a, a high degree of friction because of the number of intermediaries involved today. Um, and if uh, you may know, of course, that when you send money ab abroad, you're not actually sending the money; you're sending a message. And some mm -hmm. other bank at the other end is is basically debiting and crediting accounts, and there's a whole bunch of uh, you know uh, sort of transactions that take place to 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 sort of complete that that transaction. But here, if I send a CBDC from one person to another in another country, they receive it instantly, and it's theirs, and they have it, and they can spend it. And I think it's a different type of uh, it. It changes the I guess the geography of money, right? At the end of the day, the way money is used across these different geographic boundaries. So I think. There are retail cases where consumers are using it to transact in very, um, I guess, in, in very uh, different ways than they're doing today with other forms of digital payments uh, or banknotes or you know access to government money and things like that. Um, and there are also sort of in those scenarios, there are also some some uh, extreme cases where you have distressed scenarios at times of, of economic distress or times of uh, national emergencies and so on. Uh, you know, what do you do? How do you get money to people? How can they pay for things? How do they, you know, how, how do they transact uh, when they can't, you know, can't use their bank account, for instance, or, you know, or mm -hmm. their credit card or whatever. Yeah, um, so those are, those are some of the, the you know, things to consider as well uh, from a retail point of view. Uh, from a commercial payment point of view as well, there's a high cost, high, you know, high cost associated with payments and, uh, and there's a lot of friction associated with that. Uh, and also, I think on the cross-border side, where there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of value in using sort of CBDC for uh, dealing with cross-border payments in a more efficient way. 
I thought it would be a, a simple answer, you know, why do we need CBDC when you, when you say like, why do people need crypto? They usually use the same buzzwords, immutability, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, double spends, efficiency, all this kind of stuff. But what you're saying there is it's very complicated and it's very specific to the region, right? Like you're saying in the UK, Absolutely. maybe inclusivity isn't the biggest problem. We have like good financial setup, good financial rails, all this kind of stuff. But say in, in less developed countries, inclusivity might be the primary yeah. driver behind it. And in the UK, maybe it's more mm -hmm. about supporting some kind of public utility in the digital age, like having public services Correct. and public money yeah. in, in the metaverse, for example. So it's quite a complicated question, right? Yeah. It is a complicated, and, and, and it's one that's not only been studied a lot, it's one that's been debated a lot, and it is very jurisdiction-specific. And I can, I can give you a couple of examples in you know, very advanced economies. Um, uh, one of the things that they were looking for is, and, and, and where there's a high degree of digital payments already. So there's a very, very little usage of cash, high degree of digital payments. Everyone has a plethora of, of methods of payment. But what they were planning for, what the central bank and the government was looking for was what happens when I can't pay for anything, like the internet goes down and the electricity goes down. What happens then? Mm. How, you know, what, what, what does society do? How long can you last? Is it a mm -hmm. you know, day? Is it a week? Is it a month? What happens then? Right. So, and, yeah. um, and that's a very scary scenario. It doesn't matter which country you're in. It's a very scary scenario. And, mm -hmm. Um, and I think these, this is also, you know, an example, I'll give an example of where that, that happened, where a grocery chain in one of the Nordic countries went down and their, and their payment system went down rather. And they had, uh, a tremendous amount of difficulty because they were, uh, in all, in many different villages and towns and cities across the country, uh, but they couldn't take any payment and nobody had any cash. So they had a, a store full of goods. Uh, they had people that wanted to buy the goods. But no way to pay for the goods, right? There's no digital. So what, do you, what does one do actually? And that's just a practical, like daily or day-to-day -day thing today. But what happens if it was in a more distressed scenario than you know, time of war or conflict or something like that, mm. a natural disaster? You know, then it becomes more difficult. And, and a CBDC would be a, a much more effective mechanism for making for distributing funds, emergency funds to people, and then they would be able to use them over, you know, to make payments and things like that as well. Yeah, that's that's fascinating because I think one of the examples that springs to mind would be the the stimulus checks in America during during COVID nineteen. Yeah. You know. And, and that obviously there were lots of fraud around around that and people claiming for them, especially in the UK as well. So I think there are these, mm -hmm. as you say, these use cases, even in the more developed economies where it's not just purely about payments and remittances that, that can motivate this. There's actually so many little threads I want to pull on from what you've said already. But one thing <laughs> that really caught sure. my eye is that you said about the technology maturity being there. And yeah. when I think of CBDC, uh, you know, this is untangling Web3, we tend to think of blockchain right as the technology infrastructure yeah. for cbdc's but so my question is is that what you're referring to when you say the, the technology is matured does does cbdc require blockchain to work I'm, I'm intrigued by that question it doesn't necessarily require it to work and i think it's it's an important point to make because um you know we sort of we've sort of veered into this because we we've said um that blockchain technology is the most um effective tool to use in order to solve the set of problems. But um, I think there is a bit of a, you know, I, I think a, 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 maybe a misunderstanding there because there are a lot of ways that you can still implement CBDCs even without blockchain technology itself. There are mechanisms by which you can do this. And 
and a couple of cases and you know a couple of examples that we've had you know a, a CBDC implementation many years ago that didn't have uh, blockchain technology with it. it had strong cryptography it had secure methods of communicating value from one sort of uh, card to another or one person to another and stuff like that uh, it didn't use blockchain technology in order to do that it is however um, blockchain is sort of a, a very effective mechanism because of of uh, you know the solving for double spend problems and you know, um, you know the, the things that you described before, um, and uh, at the end of the day, um, you know there are me effective mechanisms by you know that that uh, many of the implementations of CBDCs have been implemented in in blockchain technology, but it doesn't necessarily need to be. Uh, just to be very clear about that, it is a function of what you know. It is a function of what kind of capabilities you're looking for specifically in the implementation, and again. Uh, every single one of these projects or implementations or, or you know, uh, jurisdictions is very different. They're all trying to solve for a slightly mm -hmm. different set of problems. And so for some of them, you know, it may not require blockchain at all. For other ones, it might might require it because it's the most mm -hmm. effective mechanism, uh, effective means of, of implementing what they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, that it kind of links back to the why, right? And the why is very dependent on the region and that will obviously affect the yeah. implementation. And a really a thing that I kind of picked up there was on the blockchain side is I imagine central banks, they're obviously, they want sovereignty. How does the whole sovereignty right. piece, which is one of the considerations fit in with say the public blockchain agenda? Like I can't imagine say some sovereign states wanting to have a CBDC that's based on a public blockchain with, you know, network administrators, which are effectively miners based in other countries. It's a, that, that is also very, uh, a widely uh, debated topic as well. I think it's a very good one because I think um, sovereignty, the sovereignty play is a very important play. Um, clearly, because you're talking about a country, you're talking about its uh, its money at the end of the day, and, uh, and and that has a tremendous amount of impact on uh, financial, fiscal, monetary policy, and everything else. And so, be it, the ability to be in control of that, I think, is absolutely key for any any sovereign, uh, any sovereign. A country that that's that's uh, and the money that they issue to to their society, um, and I think that if you look at the various, uh, I guess, projects and things like that, it's very difficult to see how uh, a public uh, version of of uh, of any ledger that could be used for specifically for enabling a sovereign entity to be able to issue its money on top of that that sort of public ledger. Having said all that. Um, it, this is still, you know, there's still room to explore, I think. And I think this is, there, there's a, there is potentially an overlap with regards to what role does, or does or do public ledgers and assets and currencies and everything else that gets built around all these things interface with and interact mm -hmm. with uh, a sovereign CBDC that's implemented. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't sort of, uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't want to be the one saying this because at the end, you know, it's hard to predict the future, but it, but we may at some point see something like that on the public ledger, um, something implemented like that on the public ledger, um, because there's a lot of benefit for having it um, uh, sort of uh, rolled out in such a way. But I think 
at, at present, it's it's just too much of a, of a, a leap for many central banks to be jumping mm. into and saying we want to implement our CBDC on, on a public ledger. Um, it's the same sort of debate you, I guess you would you would have with regards to cloud computing and servers in a server room at the end of the day, right? So um, many many organizations that are running critical national infrastructure will say we want all of the stuff in full control of it and so on. But over time, as you saw, you know, as we see sort of many of these uh, different cloud providers and the, the resilience of their, their networks and stuff like that, um, people have relaxed a, a little bit more, a lot more on, on, on that front. And, and, and it's not impossible to see a, a, some sort of a point in the future where CBCs may be implemented on public ledgers. But for the moment, it's a sovereign play. It's yeah. a very strong um, story. Uh, and, and it's still very early days. So I, I think it they'll be very nervous to implement these on, on public ledgers. It makes sense, right? That there's a big risk aversion there. But one thing that I picked up on, which is yeah. really interesting and not thought about before, is the idea of how CBDCs work in you know the whole world of digital assets that is obviously now going to yeah. be hitting the mainstream over the next five to 10 years. And that really brings in to the, the idea of interoperability, not just between different currencies, but also between other assets. And I mean, public blockchains probably do have an advantage there if everyone can kind of link and trust the yeah. data without it having to be in a permissioned way. So I do assume that might be a sell down the road once they've kind of you know built on maybe a web 2.5 kind of version potentially or whatever we call yeah. it yeah and digital assets i mean i think are uh, at least from a wholesale and commercial you know uh, security settlement perspective this is also an area where cbdc's can play a very do play a very strong role uh because of the fact that if you kind of have digital assets on, on an exchange well how are you going to settle those assets at the end of the day you're going to mm. use some form of uh, traditional payment rail well that's okay but you're, you're, you're going to basically rely on on settlement in a different medium and i think the reason why that's that's not um, appropriate is because of the the nature of the type of transaction so i'm sell, i'm giving you an asset and in exchange i want an immediate settlement for that asset uh in the form of digital money and i can combine that in a transaction which is atomic uh, either complete or fail uh, I can automate that. I can put smart contracts around that. I can do various things with it that make uh, these transactions um, much more uh, effective when you're using digital assets and digital CBDCs, basically, in order to do the settlement mm -hmm. side of it. Not to say that you need to do immediate settlement, because that's also another open uh, point of debate. It's just that when you do the settlement, you actually want uh, the, the the money aspect of it to be sort of in in the same format, so that you can so that you can um, complete that transaction in a more effective way. Um, and I think this is where CBDCs come into the digital asset space, build digital exchanges or digital financial markets mm -hmm. um, in a much more uh, uh, in a much more uh, effective uh, than than if you had just just one of those dimensions addressed it's great to have digital assets but how do you settle them and you know and, and using cbcs mm -hmm. is a very effective way to do that mm -hmm. i think I'm, I'm trying to crystallize in my mind because there's a few different pieces that are coming together now but i'm still wondering on this interoperability piece that you mentioned and I, I'm, I'm sure one question our listeners will have is around okay we said one of the big benefits of this is kind of cross-border payments maybe for remittances or something my question yeah. is, do you need a CBDC to be set up in both the origin country and the rece receiving country? So say I'm, you know, I'm from the UK, but I want to go and live and work in Europe, despite Brexit. But let's ignore that for a second. Say I go and live and work in Europe and I want to send funds back home. Do I need in the CBDC model to have 
the UK and the EU both using a CBDC that talk to each other? Or is there is there a way this can work kind of unilaterally in your mind? Uh, less effectively, yes, you can. Uh, but you're also then dealing with uh, something that is instantaneous. Uh, it's sort of, let me, let me sort of put it in a, in, a, in a slightly different way. If I hand you a banknote and you hand me an IOU, right? Uh, that's not <laughs> right at the end of the day. <laughs> so if I'm, uh, if I'm doing these kind of transfers, I want something of equal, uh, in, in an e of equal value, not only in terms of the unit of account, in, in terms of the value, in terms of the, uh, what you're giving me, but also in the fact that it's immediate, it's final, it's, you know, you, there's no way to dispute mm -hmm. it and things like that. So I think um, we see a tremendous amount of, uh, of interest on the whole cross-border side. And the reason for it is uh, traditionally we've been using um, you know, a very, you know, a, a network of correspondent banks. We've been using mechanisms like SWIFT to do the messaging back and forth to say, I want to transfer funds from you know, here to there. Uh, and correspondent banks to sort of route the money around and, and so on. And not only that, but but it's also been done in 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 a very limited number of currencies or currency pairs. So when you get exotic currencies right uh, into the mix, they usually triangulate through dollars or whatever. And and, and the 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 challenge is, you then get a lot of friction associated with that transaction, um, and timing and delays and sometimes things get blocked and all these other things that happen as a result of that. And what we, where we see uh, a lot of interest is the fact that if I have a CBDC in my country and you have a CBDC in your country and, and we agree to transfer to one another this uh, for, in order to make this, this currency exchange, there's nobody else that's needed in the mix in the middle of that, right? So we just basically agree a, we agree a price. Um, and we, you know, there may be some market data that we can, that we can use in order to do that. We agree a price and exchange rate and, and there is an immediate transfer of value. And this is where I send you the money only when you send me the money. And because it's, because it's, uh, a digital, a CBDC, um, and it's atomic, uh, swap can happen in a very effective, uh, manner without, uh, risk associated with you know, the counterparties in the middle of that. So when we talk about, you know, why do this in the first place, what we're trying to eliminate uh, is really, it's not necessarily the speed because things um, can be, you know, quick these days, faster payments is pretty instantaneous. I mean, it's not the speed dimension of it. Um, it. It is the fact that you have counterparties in the middle of it. And depending on the leg that you're transacting or the currency or the, you know, and, and I think that's where it becomes much more, um, uh, of a challenge and where CBDCs, uh, especially when you have multiple countries, um, looking and implementing and creating an exchange around those, then it becomes a much more effective way of trans transfer value. There are several projects that have happened. Um, and I think I just want to make a couple of points. The first one is, um, central bank money has traditionally never left the, I guess, the jurisdiction of the, of mm. the country in which it issued it, mm -hmm. uh, apart from banknotes, right? So banknotes, banknotes can move freely and sometimes there are capital controls, but fundamentally they, they, they can move. But digital central bank money has never been able to leave the sort of the jurisdiction that, in which it's been issued. 
And now with CBDCs, you have the ability to do that. There are a couple of projects. The first, you know, first one of its kind is something I was involved in was called Project Jura, where you had uh, the Banque de France uh, issue a digital euro and it was used in a security settlement in Switzerland and vice versa, mm. that transaction. And that was a liability of the central bank. So it was the counterparty risk to zero. Um, and you, you can use it in order to do the settlement of a securities trade in another jurisdiction. Mm. Now, fast forward that a little bit. Uh, projects like Enbridge uh, also did the same thing, and they used four different currencies from four different central banks, and they allowed sort of 20 commercial banks to move money across these four jurisdictions without ever touching the dollar, right? It was Central Bank <laughs> of UAE, it was uh, People's Bank of China, it was... Uh, uh, Bank of Thailand and Hong Kong Monetary Authority. So all these mm. uh, and and all these sort of transactions were happening. It was a payment versus payment in their local currencies, but they never left. Uh, they they basically never touched any other currency in in that in that uh, in the exchange that was taking place, and the money moved from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Now, if you fast forward that even further, imagine a scenario where you have free flowing or flowing sort of central bank digital currency across multiple geographies mm. um, in a more efficient way. And you're creating a very different type of, a, you know, ecosystem basically on the back of that. That is, I mean, that's really interesting. And now I'm glad we kind of get into some project specifics. I know Jack wants to talk about the digital pound at some point or the proposal for the digital yeah. pound. Something that has kind of come to mind uh, for me that I was reading an article about the um, the digital yuan. And when you're talking about cross-border settlements, and then we were also talking about sovereignty earlier, uh, it was the yeah. digital yuan being used in Africa. And obviously it creates, it's a really efficient mechanism for a lot of people in Africa right now to actually use the central bank digital currencies based in China. But this it creates a sovereignty dynamic, right, for African governments that now no longer have, you know, financial control over assets in, in their uh, regions. What does that mean? I mean, you have this in in uh, in many market in many countries around the world. You have dollarization, where the dollar is the predominant currency, regardless of what is it, you know what has been issued by the local central bank. You have euroization, same sort of concept uh, as well, where the euro is used predominantly for for transactions rather than local currencies and so on. And now, I, I guess through the digital yuan. Uh, that you will end up with a uh, you know yuanization or renminbiization of the of the of the marketplace, mm. and I think that'll end. I mean, this these will all play out right. I think at the end, um, and it become. I guess it's the the function of the utility, uh, how you can use that money uh, in a local market, and and I think the interesting thing is it's not far. It's not a far fetched sort of idea where, you know, you have. Uh, China has sort of uh, invested a, a tremendous amount in building this Belt and Road Initiative across the world, right? From China all the way through to uh, Central Asia, through to Middle East and Africa and Europe and other countries as well. So there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of jurisdictions that are um, part of this Belt and Road Initiative and, and infrastructure, so ports and roads and everything else. Mm -hmm. That's that allows the flow of goods to go back and forth uh, between these different countries. Well, if you have also major buyers like China who are buying these raw materials from all these different countries, how would they pay for it? Right? Do they pay for it in dollars? Do they pay for it in local currency? Do they pay for it in one? Um, and at the end, it's it's uh, you know it's not that far fetched to think. Well, if I can give you a digital currency immediately, 
Uh, and you can also spend it immediately. So you can put it onto your wallet. You can, you know, link it with your Alipay wallet and so on. You as a consumer sitting in Africa can make payments uh, based on things that you received. And it may be more, uh, and it may be more stable than your local currency. So of course you can accept it. Of course you can want to use it. That's where governments begin to lose sort of the sovereignty, uh, I think, and uh, the ability to have more control over their monetary and fiscal policies. Um, and I think that's where, uh, you know, it'll, it'll all play out. And I think at the end, it, it means that, you know, those countries will have to do more to be, uh, provide you know, a level of prudence in their economic affairs. Otherwise you'll end up with, you know, these kind of dollarization, you know, euroization or oneization of economies, mm-hmm. which you've seen in many cases. Mm-hmm. No easy answer to that. So one. speaking of, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, as, as with a lot of these, I think there's, you're doing a great job of, of managing very not easy answers. So thank you for, for giving us all the detail. So kind of, as you mentioned, sovereignty, let's bring it back to the UK. As Alex said, I'm very interested in, obviously, the Bank of England is currently in the process, as most central banks um, are in the world of, of exploring what CBDC looks like. So I, I'm not actually completely up to date with what's happening there. I'm sure you are, maybe can, can tell us a little bit about it, because I know lots of people are talking about it, kind of... Uh, in general, in the public, there are definitely people who are talking about it from a concern of privacy, potentially, and worried about, you know, what the Bank of England might be able to to monitor via via what they build. So maybe uh, if you're if you're up to date with this much more than we are, can you give us an overview of where the Bank of England is and kind of what what roadmap there might be in in the UK for for a CBDC? Sure. I mean, I think uh, I want to touch upon the privacy topic because I think it's a big topic on its own um, and. Mm. Um, again, you know, not an easy one, but I, I think with one of the, the challenges I think that we all have in, in discussing these topics is that people are concerned about, and sometimes we're very rightfully concerned about, you know, things that, that may happen, right? At the end, it doesn't mean that it will happen. It just means that it may happen where you end, with, when you end up with solutions that are uh, rolled out um, that have uh, a, a very, um, that have things that are of concern of, for consumers. Um, privacy is a very big topic, um, and in and in many markets, it varies widely in terms of the degree of concern from the general public. In some markets, it's not a concern at all. In other markets, it's absolutely mm-hmm. the most important thing. And mm-hmm. um, and and I think it, it has a, a lot to do with trust and faith in government. It all has a lot to do with perhaps the you know the. Um, uh, geopolitical, the sort of uh, context in which countries are operating in, um, degree of surveillance of government, um, things like that. So I think it has a lot, uh, there's a lot to consider, to unpack there, to actually to look at privacy as a topic. Um, but again, the, the thing is that that uh, a lot of that can be completely controlled and implemented in sol- with solutions that, that provide a, high, a very high degree of privacy for consumers as well. Yeah. So there are there are projects worked on them and are working on them uh, as we speak, where users can have a high degree of anonymity with regards to cons- purchases that they make. So just like buying things like with cash, um, you can control how much information you share with a merchant. You can control how much um, you 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 sort of provide to them as a as a result of the transaction, and only in extreme circumstances by. Uh, if values are above a certain amount and 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 a number of conditions are met, then obviously things are disclosed uh, to regulators if need be, right? So things, situations like that. Um, 
but I think that that's also a, a very important thing to sort of highlight for people to you know, express that concern and to make it a very important topic. And then obviously it gets factored into the design and the building of the solution. So not all CBDC solutions are the same as you implement them. So you can, you know, you can have high degree of privacy and anonymity. It's more complicated, but it's doable or, or, you know, very much, uh, transparent solution where every transaction can be monitored and so on if the if the central bank and or regulator would you know deemed it necessary uh, or deemed it desirable rather uh, however consumers always have the option to not use it at all I think so there's a there's a balance between you know you're 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 providing something that you know people don't want to use and then all of a sudden people don't use it so you know then then it's an immediate feedback loop where you know people just stay away from from certain things. So I think it's uh, I, I think it's a lot of things to consider. The thing I think it's important is um, you know not all solutions are the same. There are a number of them that have um, uh, different types of uh, privacy sort of big, baked into the solutions uh, as you roll them out, and uh, important points that they need to be sort of factored into the design. And and of course important that consumers uh, express that concern to to sort of their uh, into the into the central bank that's, that's actually implemented. And there's a lot of consultation papers that are out. There's a lot of consultations that have been taking place uh, with regards to sort of uh, the wider market, including the Bank of England that has done a number of those uh, things as well. This was the first part of a two-parter on central bank digital currencies with John Velasarios. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Untangling Web3, produced by Emma Camilleri. Don't forget to send us your thoughts, questions, and comments on social media. And be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast provider to catch the next episode. See you next time to untangle a little bit more of Web3. The views we express here are our own and do not reflect the views of our employers.